The next chapter with Prem Saripip Hat drops every Wednesday on the Athletic Podcast Network and wherever you find podcasts. transitioning out of identity. You know, I've had people say, weren't you Gabrielle, that volleyball player? I was like, well, actually, funny enough, I'm still Gabby. I'm here. Check, check, check. One, two, three. Let's do this. We finally meet each other. There was only very, very, very few that get to end it how they want. On a Super Bowl win and, hey, right off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. How many people get to end it like that? Welcome, Welcome to the next chapter with Prim's Ripapap. You were like, laugh at the football. And I was like, all right, cool. On this show, you can have your cake and eat it too. Hey guys, welcome to the next chapter. I'm your host, Prim Saripapat. As the NFL season comes to a close, I thought it'd be a good time to feature an athlete who's played on football's biggest stage. And because of that, he felt at peace in walking away from the game. Today's guest is former NFL linebacker and ESPN college football analyst, Jonathan Vilma. Jonathan Vilma came on the blitz. What's up, baby? Oh, oh. another ball comes up. Another fierce tackle. Those are two of the most incredible tackles you'll see in football. Just so you know, we recorded this last October, which would explain why we don't reference the Chiefs and 49ers game and also the passing of Kobe Bryant, which, by the way, I will address in a later episode. But going back to Jonathan, he's one of the few athletes I've talked to who didn't really struggle all that much after retiring. Some of it had to do with the fact that he had a 10-year NFL career and played until he was 30-plus years old, and he also achieved the two goals he set for himself, making it to the Pro Bowl, which he did three times, and winning a Super Bowl, which he did in 2010 with the New Orleans Saints. And that year just so happened to be my very first time covering the Super Bowl. I was a reporter in Miami at the time, which is where it was held. And here we are, 10 years later, talking about life after sport. Now, there are two aspects of Vilma's story that I find really intriguing. The first is the level of athletic success he was able to achieve despite having started football so late in life. He didn't play until high school. And to all the sports parents listening, this is where I need your ears to perk up. Because Vilma talks about how being a multi-sport athlete as a kid benefited him later on. His parents' decision to not let him specialize in any one sport, in my opinion, also allowed him to develop a more well-rounded sense of identity as a child, which in turn set him up for success once he retired from football. The second aspect of the story that's impressive is a level of commitment he poured into starting the next chapter of his life while he was still playing football. I was shocked when he told me that he was an analyst for a local TV station while he was still playing for the Saints. In fact, he did that for four seasons. People, that means on game days, he'd wake up, have breakfast with the team, go to team meetings, go to the warm-up, go to the game, grind for three and a half hours, do post-game interviews, do recovery work, and then run over to the station and do all of his broadcasting stuff. 
So to all the athletes listening right now, this is where I need your ears to perk up because it shows the type of work ethic required to begin a whole new career after sport. All right, without further ado, let's bring in today's guest, Jonathan Vilma, who, by the way, was kind enough to come onto the show, even though he really had no idea what we were doing. (laughs) That's my bad. You'll know what I'm talking about in a couple of minutes. You know, this is like, this is a really chill show. Or is it just me? You just want to be like chill. No. Well, I I don't know what we're doing, but I was like, cool, I'll do it. (laughs) You you didn't really explain it, but it's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Did I not explain it? I was like, hey, can you, you were like, life after football. And I was like, all right, cool. Well, that's like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was like, all right. <laughs> so it's called The Next Chapter with Prim Seripapat. And it's yeah. basically exploring how athletes cope with life transitions. Okay. Okay, cool. But I actually remember talking to you. I don't know if you remember this, but this was a few years back. Um, and it was in conjunction with the documentary that, that we were doing. I believe you said, you're like, I didn't really struggle with leaving football. No. Because I, I said I got everything I wanted out of it. So I was good. So that's the interview. Okay. It'll be a short interview. (laughs) (laughs) Why didn't you have a hard time? With what? With leaving football. I didn't have a hard time because the first was when I got drafted, my goals were like, you know, pretty simple. I was like, I want to go to the Pro Bowl and I want to win the Super Bowl. And I got those. End of my contract with the Saints. I knew that they weren't going to re-sign me. So I was like, I've seen the other side. I saw both sides of of the business. The good side with the Saints, Mm -hmm. went to playoffs every year. And then I saw the other side when I was here with the Jets. You go 4-12 and and it sucks. Everything about it sucks. So I was like, you know what? Grass isn't always green on the other side. And I didn't feel like going to another team. I got everything I wanted. That was the first part. The second part was my daughter was three years old at the time, three or four years old. Give when or take, you retired? When I retired. Uh-huh. And um, I was like, you know, I want to spend more time with her. That was the whole point of playing and saving your money and doing all that stuff. So I was yeah. like, I want to spend more time with her. And then the third was that, you know, I was, uh, I was already transitioning with uh, some of the businesses I was doing. So I was like, you know, I want to see my daughter or I want to see my daughter more. Um, I don't want to go to another team because you end up, I would have been like that old disgruntled veteran. If I go to a team that, you know, ends up like eight and eight, I was like, I don't want to be a part of that. It's trash. I don't want to be a part of any of that. So, and so that's why I ended up retiring and I thought I would miss it. I I didn't miss it at all. To be honest with you, I actually trained um, with, it was a bunch of UM guys go down. So it was me, Jimmy Graham and, uh, DJ Antrell was still playing. So Antrell rolled, a bunch of us were still training. So I was still training with them. They all went to training camp and it was kind of weird. I was like, damn, you know, first time not going to training camp. This is around like 2012? 2013 okay. or 14. And so I remember I was like, man, I wonder how it's going to feel when I turn on the TV and I'm watching training camp. Because I, I was one of the weird ones. I liked training camp. It was, it was fun. It was letting me focus in and I knew that the season was about to start. Got it. But, um, Segway all the way back to uh, watching training camp. I turned it on and I looked and I was like, it looks hot out there. I was like, 
don't want to do that. <laughs> I was like, I don't miss any of that. I was like, oh, yeah, that looks physical. Like, yeah, no, no, no. I just kind of turned it off and like kind of sat back. Yeah, I sat back. I was like, yeah, I don't miss any of this. Good. And that's where I knew I was like, yeah, I'm done. I think the conversation changes mm-hmm. with guys who are a little bit younger. If I had not won a Super Bowl, I would have been trying to play still. That was the thing that allows you to really step away, even yeah. if you dealt with the injuries that you did. Because how many knee mm. surgeries did you have? Five. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Two, three, know. sports hernia, sports hernia, torn label. So yeah. I'm curious if there's that switch, if we're just talking about your position as mm. linebackers, what happens to that other side when you're not playing sport anymore? Where does it go? Because for some mm. guys, yeah, you gotta it's find still an outlet. there. Yeah, of course. So. Like you, you want that competition. That's what you miss. I'm curious about your childhood. So you're born and raised in Coral Gables. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what yeah. was being in South Florida and having lived there mm-hmm. and understanding the, the hotbed and like how passionate everybody is about football? Mm-hmm. What was your childhood like? So I didn't play football until high school. How yeah. did you not play? F- How My did dad. you wait? wait, wait. Yeah. Let me let me. I'm going to condense your life. Yeah. So you did not start football Correct. until high school, and yet you 14. went on to win a national championship and a Super Bowl. Yeah, and you lived in South Florida, where football is like everything. Football is God. Yes. Well, how did that happen? My dad wouldn't let me play. He was afraid I'd get hurt. No way. So I wanted to play Pop Warner the whole time. I played soccer. And all my friends were playing football, and I was like, I want to play, I want to play. It was like, nope, 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 nope. So, yeah, every year I'd ask him, every year I was like, no. So finally, seventh grade, I asked him, he was like, fine, you can play in high school. I was like, all right, good. I asked him again in eighth grade to be sure. He was like, (laughs) all right, yeah, you can play. And then he was like, well, you can play if you get good grades. So I was like, all right, cool. And then I I would watch – so I told Ray Lewis, uh, Michael Bear, all those guys, I would watch them because I loved yeah. them. So I'd watch them. I was like, ooh, I want to be a linebacker. Like that, was, that was the only thing I wanted to be because I'd watch Ray. I'd watch all the UM linebackers. So um, high school, I try out. They're like, what position do you want? Like, linebacker. They're like, you sure? I was like, yep, promise you, linebacker. And, and how big were you? Were you like pretty no. built by then or were no. you still? I grew, but I was skinny. I was always light. So I was probably 160 freshman year. Like when I graduated, I was only 195, 200. I was not big at all, but I I loved to hit. So (laughs) that's all I cared about. Was soccer your sport as a kid? Yeah, I was really good in soccer. I was going to go on a traveling squad, but I wanted to play football. Because you have played in college? Soccer? Soccer? Um, Probably. Probably because I was already on the traveling squad for like the state of Florida. Mm-hmm. And then it would have been time to go to a traveling squad that goes like a- across the country, but I chose uh, football instead. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I looked at our soccer team. They were good. I would, I probably would have done pretty well. And now today there's this conversation about over-specialization in sport and kids starting so young, which leads to burnout and injuries. I agree. I don't know if any kid would do what you did which is wait until high school unless they're parents, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that I played soccer, football, basketball. If you're an athlete, it's supposed to translate or you do soccer. And then now all of a sudden, you know, a guy makes you miss 
while he's dribbling the ball. That's hard as hell. So now I'm going against guys that they don't have a ball. And so I'm like, oh, this is easy. You know? Same thing with basketball. It's like you make a guy miss with a ball in your hand and you're dribbling a ball. That's a, that's a beast. And so that's why they're the best athletes. You know, these guys are tall and they have great body control mm-hmm. and they can do things that I can do, but they're six inches, seven inches, eight inches taller. Right. And then, you know, obviously on the aggressive side, football was able to have me more aggressive as far as like boxing out and things of that nature. When was your first exposure to sports? How old were you? Six, five, six. And that was with soccer? soccer. Yeah. yeah. When did soccer, you start watching football? Eight, seven or eight. Yeah. Miami? Only that, Miami. All Miami. Yeah, yeah. Because that was like, that was in the eighties. That was, that was Late the 80s, time. Early 90s, that yes. was the, the U. Yes, exactly. Just growing that in that era, not to mention you were, you were literally stuck in the middle of Coral Gables. Yeah. How much do you think that shaped your passion for football? It was the reason that I played the way I did because I watched the way the Canes did in the late eighties, early nineties and how they played. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I want to be like that. That was it. Well, at what point did you know that this could be a future? I honestly never thought about it until the end of my junior year in college. My defense coordinator, Randy Shannon comes to me. He's like, Hey, oh. I was like, what's up? He's like, you're not leaving. Are you? What are you talking about? He's like, you're not leaving early. Saying, no, nah, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. He's like, all right, good. I'll see you next week. And that's when that was the first time I even thought about it because, like I said, I was always light. So every time, you know, uh, people look, they'd be like, oh, yeah, he's a good linebacker, but he's he's light. He, How much does he weigh? Oh, he's only, you know, I played in the national championship at like 215 pounds. And uh, I played in the other one where we got robbed at like, 220 maybe max mm-hmm. so i never even thought about it. i just would play because i was assuming i'm too light to play and then randy had gotten like the uh scouting reports or and started hearing kind of the buzz so i didn't even think about it until he said something and i was like oh okay so let me see what the scouts are saying because i never thought about it and they're like oh yeah he's uh you know late first early second and it was all the same thing late first early second Everything as far as playing was good, but he's a little light in the ass. All right, whatever. And I was like, it's pretty good, though. I was like, I never really thought about that. My senior year, I knew I had a chance to go, like a real chance to go. Um, but I didn't really think about it much because I just, I just love playing. So it was, but it was I like there's nothing was going to change. I didn't think about it because you were in football country. Like back right. in the so like here's 90s. Why I, so you, you got to think. When I played, you had like Ed Reed, Andre yeah. Johnson. I can name the list goes on and on, right? Of yeah. all these guys. And they were extremely athletic. So Andre Johnson is 6'2, 230, probably really 240, but played at 230 <laughs> and he's running a 4'4. So I'm like, I'm not. I'm assuming that all the guys in the NFL are these beasts, like, like who I'm playing against. And I'm like, I'm not as athletic as they are. I'm athletic, but not like that. So it's because you're surrounded by like, so I'm surrounded by all this talent. Like even uh, yeah. my freshman year, Dan Morgan, he was, uh, he was a senior. He gets drafted in the first round. Dan Morgan was six two two forty, And he was just as fast as me. I'm like, well, clearly I'm never going to get to two forty. But, but then 
he leaves, he gets right. drafted, he's a first round, but then right. you replace him. So then right. wouldn't somebody think, I mean, because most athletes that I, I would talk to would say like, yeah, I just replaced Morgan. He just won the first round. We just won a national championship. Like the typical athlete, especially like male, no offense to everyone else, but the male ego would be like, yes, I can definitely ball. Yeah, I, I know I can ball, but the thought of, oh, I can ball and play in the league. Like I said, the guys that were getting drafted, I was like, well, they're all bigger than me, faster than me. So that, that's how the whole NFL is. So I never really thought about it from that perspective. <laughs> so then yeah. what were you planning to do? What did you major in? Finance. Okay. Yeah, so it been investment banking. I made my way up here somewhere. New York? Yeah, my sister was already up here, Morgan Stanley. So, oh, okay, yeah, okay. So, yeah, I was like, yeah, go that route. So then, Randy Shannon says that the wheels start turning about the NFL. N- not so much. It started turning, as in, yeah, it's a realization, but not okay. Now I have to think about every practice I have or anything like that. I was just like, okay, well, I got this far, not really thinking about the NFL and just playing my ass off. So. Why am I going to change now? So I'll just keep doing what I've been doing, and then we'll see what happens from there. <laughs> You're so yeah. just, like, so chill. It, the thing about it was I never thought I would go. So if I started <laughs> putting that thought in my head, I didn't want to act any differently. So I was like, I, I'm just going to keep working my ass off, keep playing hard, and then whatever happens from there happens. And then same thing when I got drafted. I get drafted. Herm Edwards actually drafted me Hmm. and um, I get here and I'm with the Jets and he's like, you know, I want you to be our guy. You got to You're going to be our guy and our captain and all this stuff. And I'm like, all right, cool. I got you. And it was just what I knew. All I knew to do was work my ass off and and play my ass off and then make sure everyone else is playing hard. And that that was it. That was it. And if if I made it more than what it was, I I don't think I would have performed. I'm trying to think of some athletes that you remind me of as I'm like talking this out with you. The people that come to mind are um, Roger Federer, Steph Curry, where you're so laid back. Nothing gets too high and nothing gets too low. Yeah, I learned that quickly in college. So did you not always used to be like that? So I learned it quickly, like freshman year quickly. So my freshman year, Dan Morgan who I'm backing up. I'm second team to him. The very first game, I didn't expect to play because I'm behind Dan Morgan and he's the Buckets Award winner, All-American, all this stuff. I'm just chilling. I'm on the sideline just chilling like, all right, this is cool. You know, watch the game. He all of a sudden gets sick. He starts throwing up on the field and they're like, Elma, you got to go in. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, (laughs) this is real. (laughs) I'm about to go in the game. And then, uh, I remember I went in and I played well, but to your point of not getting too high or low, I'm not going to be the, the weak link, right, of this of this defense. So the only thing I know to do for sure is see ball, get ball. Yeah. So if I just go to the ball, I'll be okay. And so that's, that's like the first thing I did. I was like, just make sure you call the defense and then just go get the ball. Mm-hmm. And everything else will kind of play itself out. So I did that. And then, uh, like, the newspapers, I, I ended up with a really good game. And the newspapers were writing about me, and they're like, oh, he's the next great, blah, 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 all this stuff. 
So you know, I'm feeling myself a little bit. And then I go into film room because I yeah. told you the only thing I knew was just to go get the ball. And my coach is like, yeah, you fucked up here. You fucked up there. This is wrong. This is wrong. You were too amped up? Both. And I'm a 18-year-old trying to play big-time college football. Mm. So I was like, all right, I'm not going to read the papers. <laughs> so uh, I stopped reading the papers after literally like week two. I never read the papers during the season because of that. And then I was like, I'm just going to make sure that I get into the playbook. I know everything. And then to your point, I'll get too amped up. So then it was the next year. My coach was like, look, you got to find that balance, find a happy balance. So because of that, you know, I never really took, I never went too high or low on anything. And especially in a game, like you can't ride the wave in a game. It's exhausting. Yeah. The emotions that you can, if, if you do that, like you, you can never get caught up in the emotions of a game. And then um, when I got to the NFL, the playbook is obviously more extensive. Offenses are more extensive. So I had to like literally think the game. Mm-hmm. So there was just too much to think about to even get on a high or to get on a low. It was just too much to think about whether I'm thinking of the offense or if I had to make checks and tell the defense or whatever it was. So, you know, you would always just, everyone always just kind of see me like this and they'd be like, Hey man, you good? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I just got so much to think about. Like, even yeah. if this person's trying to talk shit to me, I really don't even listen to it because I'm on to thinking of the game or the next play or whatever's going you're on. You're so unique in that there's so many other guys. I do get amped up and their emotions. They do get carried away with their emotions. That teachable moment when you stepped in from Oregon. Yeah. That kind of paved the way you made that adjustment mentally. Never read the papers after that. And then it was just all ball. Yeah. Because when you transitioned to the NFL, I mean, it was, you don't really see that kind of, it wasn't even just like a seamless transition. It was a, you got NFL defensive rookie of the year and then your sophomore, you didn't experience a sophomore slump. You led the NFL tackles. It was a very easy defense. I had, I had really good uh, defensive linemen. I had Sean Ellis, John Abram at the time. Those guys were awesome DNs. And so the defense was very similar to what I ran in college. It was easy defensively. And so then it was just a matter of understanding offenses better because as I said, they were more extensive and, you know, once you start to understand the offenses and the angles and things like that, it wasn't, it wasn't hard. Did you have a difficult moment during your athletic career? Was there was there a moment? I mean, maybe it was that that playing moment, playing uh, moment, or adjustment period. Whether yeah. that was with Mangini when he went to three four, that was difficult because that was the first time that I had ever known a, known what play was coming and knew I could not do anything to stop it, and it was because of the scheme. And so uh, just uh, the difference in running a four, three, and three, four, usually you have to take on more linemen as, as a linebacker in a three, four defense. And we line up. I knew the play was coming, you know, right there. I knew I got to take this guy on and still couldn't make the play hmm. because that's just the way the defense was set up. And what year was that? That was oh. Six and oh seven. So that was so after, that was so that was after your knee one or two of your knee surgeries? No, right before. Right uh, well, before. after this one, these were right. in college, but right before. When you were going through your knee issues, did did you struggle with that at all? No, Rehab, coming back? No. So it was 
So even when you got the news about surgery, yeah, you were cool with it. Positive mind, yeah. positive mindset. It's like, yeah. They said, you know, nine months or whatever, I was like, I'll be back in seven. Where yeah. do you get where do you get this mindset from? Where do you get this? Because it's almost like you're able to really, really, <clears throat> really look at things objectively. Parents, father, parents, mother. Uh both my parents, my sister, as I said, older sister. Um very pragmatic. So everything was kind of just like black and white, see things objectively, don't get too high on the high, too low on the low. So, um, yeah, I was like, don't get me wrong. I was mad and frustrated mm-hmm. when, when I had season ending knee surgery. But after that, you get over that emotion. And it's like, all right, what are you going to keep pouting? Well, I'm not going to keep pouting. So mm-hmm. let's get ready. Let's get right. Is there another side to it? Like what? So your parents are from Haiti, right? Mm-hmm. So my parents, <laughs> um, they immigrated over from Thailand when they were 25 years old. And so Asians are are at least similar in the fact of, you know, there's the whole joke of they're very Asians are very robotic and they don't really, they don't show a lot of emotion. And that is very, it is very true. Yeah, very similar. So that's why. <laughs> yeah, very similar. Yeah. And I don't know if that's a... I mean, obviously, it's a very cultural thing. I think it's a very generational thing, too. Mm-hmm. I think it has to do with potentially them being immigrants and coming over here and going through all the hardship that they did, mm-hmm. I would imagine. But your upbringing was similar? Very similar. Um, it was It's probably why I was good with coaching, because it was one of those, you're doing good if they don't say anything, right? Yeah. Kind of one of those. So if, uh, you know... Bring home good grades, cool, like it's expected. And um, same thing with coaches. I, I, if the coach is not telling me anything, I'm cool. And, you know, some people, they want the feedback. And I'm like, look, he's just that type of coach. That's the way he coaches. If you're doing good, you know, he doesn't say anything. If you're not doing well, then he gets on you. Some people want the constant feedback, and I didn't need it. And I guess it was because of that. And then, you know, now that I look back at it, because I do the same thing with my daughter, they already knew where I was as far as mentally, physically, emotionally. So they already knew that it was expected I should get A's. It was expected that I was going to be ultra competitive. They knew all of that before I knew that, right? So mm-hmm. I know so the things that set my daughter off before she even realized that. She'll realize that as she gets older, you know, like she'll get A's now. And I'm like, okay, that's good. <laughs> And I tell her good job and I leave it at that. But I already knew that she was extremely smart. So I think it's like a combination of they already knew who I was and Mm -hmm. my potential. After I went to that Pro Bowl, I didn't care about the Pro Bowl anymore. Right. So then next up is the Super Bowl. Super Bowl, yeah. Did that ever overtake your focus or your mind? Was there a point where you're like, when is this going to happen? Super Bowl? So 08, first year with the Saints. It was that was a kind of when is this ever going to happen? Because we had a really good team and then just got decimated with injuries. And we're just like, man, like we had a lot of talent. We lost a bunch of games by three points, two points, you know, a touchdown. And this is year five or six for me. I'm just like, man, you know, you see other people winning it mm-hmm. and you know that your team was just as good or just as competitive or we lost that team by like three points and we had, you know, five guys out and they're, they're now in the divisional round or in the NFC championship. And you're like, 
man, so I remember we were just, we as in the team, we were talking about, we're like, you know, we can be really good. It sucks that we had the injury bug hit us. So, you know, we just got to regroup. And it was kind of like, man, what's going to happen the next year, right? And then sure enough, like, we're all healthy. We play well. We went on a 13-game win streak and then lost the last three games and then ended up winning the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. It was in Miami. In Miami. Yep. Against the Colts? Against the Colts. That was my first Super Bowl. And you know what I remember about it? What? It was 30 degrees. Do you it remember how chilly. cold it was? So cold. It was chilly. It was surprisingly, I don't know if it was, yeah. Yeah, it was surprisingly chilly, yes. So what was that moment like, winning the Super Bowl? Oh, man, it was, it was like the ultimate high. And now I see why like guys like Brady, people are like, oh, why, why doesn't he just retire? To feel that high, is, it was nothing like it. Nothing compares. Mm. Nothing. So did, did that make you want to play more? Did you want it made, more? It made me want it... to win more, mm-hmm. that much more. It made a lot of the guys on our team want to win that much more. When it was time to hang it up, though, you say, I did accomplish that. Right? That was one of my goals. I accomplished it. So, you know, I don't have to chase that because I know what it feels like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you feel upset at all that it kind of sort of ended on an injury? Were you upset no. about how it ended? No, because there's only very, very, very few that get to end it how they want it to end, right? And usually it would be on a Super Bowl win and, hey, right off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. How many people get to end it like that? Not many. So odds are that you're going to end prematurely. Uh, you're going to get cut and wonder why no one else is picking you up, even though you're healthy, or you're going to get injured and be done that way or you're gonna leave on your own terms but never win at all if you're there four options three of the four aren't really the best but mm-hmm. it's what it is so did you when do you remember the moment that you were like i'm done this is it when i turned on the tv and watched training camp mm-hmm. that's when i was like i'm done i'm no interest in being in training camp and i i like i said i used to love going to training camp and that was it yeah and you knew yeah so what it life look like in a couple of years after that, during that period? Uh, life was good. Um, I was... Because it's a big, it's a big transition. Yeah. It, it happens very quickly. And I think yeah. a lot of athletes do struggle with that. So it sounds like you I think the athletes struggle with, oh, the time is so rigid. If you get comfortable with someone telling you your time all the time, where you're supposed to be, you're not used to saying, all right, I, like I'm going to make my own schedule. That's where the, the issues come because now you have all this time. It's like, what do I do? Not only is no one telling you what to do with your time, nobody cares. So yes. it's not like someone's going to come out of the woodwork and be like, Hey, you should be doing this. So like nobody cares. So I think that's where the struggles come because yes, I had a schedule. I knew you know, they give us, you know, they give us the itinerary where we're supposed to be. But at the same time, I look at the itinerary and I had my day mapped out to the minute for right. game day or for the week. It was funny. My coach always knew. He was like, I know exactly where you're going to be at any point in time during the day. And it was because that's the, I set my schedule like this is for the week, my work week. This is what I'm going to do. This is where I'm going to be, et cetera. This is when I'm going to watch film. Whatever it was. It's very specific to football, too, because there's so many meetings and so many right. uh, meetings watching film. Right. Um, so after the transition or after I retired, 
I'm going to set my schedule. And so I'd set my schedule and I just go. So you transferred those same time management skills and structuring your schedule right. immediately over. Right. So and then yeah. also understanding that to the point of no one cares, everyone's busy doing whatever they're doing. Right. So if I want to get into real estate or business or whatever it is, no one is now going to be beating down my, there's no coach, right? There's no coach watching my every play, every move to tell me what I should or shouldn't be doing. You have to, I tell guys, you got to humble yourself and understand that it's not personal. If someone doesn't get back to you right away. It's not per- because a coach will get back to you right away. Right. It's not personal. Yeah, if you true. have to follow up a couple times to speak with someone, um, because <clears throat> they're used to, like I said, you call your head coach, uh, you know, something's going on because I'm not feeling good. Then all of a sudden everyone's figuring out, are you okay? And we want you back. They're at your beck and call. Exactly. And so now it's not like that. Right. And if you want to get into whatever it is, it doesn't have to be a business. It could be just a great one broadcasting. So I'm in now. ESPN told me no, I think two times before I finally went up there. And I didn't know that. Yeah. They, they, because they're like, Oh, he doesn't really have any film. All right, so I'll go get some film instead of being like, oh, how could they not want me? And Because that's how some of the players feel. Like, how could they not want me? Okay, cool. Got you. Go get some film, do some good work, and then send it again. And uh, I think that's those two things, time management Mm -hmm. and understanding that people are not at your beck and call anymore. Mm -hmm. Those days are done. When I first met you, yeah, it was around 2016. So you came later towards the end of my ESPN career. So, yeah. And what did you do in Man, between? 2016, huh? <laughs> it was Time when we flies. did first take, first take college, college first football. Take. I remember. Uh, and it felt like you were just beginning. Did you just start? So I had done NBC for about 18 months before that. Okay. Yeah. You, so you were yeah. kind of like yeah, not it, totally NBC. fresh, but a little... Because NBC was very, I shouldn't say very, it was just more proper. Like, you know, ESPN, yeah. we can kind of just shoot the shit. Well, especially on first take. They would just right. let it rip. Let us go. We know yeah. what we're talking about, and yeah. boom, we kind of just make it work. So what did you do in between retiring and broadcasting? Um, before that, I had my businesses. Um, so I was then starting uh, to get into real estate. And then also into restaurants. So I was doing that. And then I was doing all in local, Miami. All in Miami. And I was doing local in New Orleans, actually, post game. I did that for three seasons. Oh, wow. While I was playing. Did one while more season you were playing. While I was playing. So, like, after the game, I'd go and do local. And it was interesting because that's where I cut my teeth on, you know, you should project from your stomach and things of that nature. Didn't know any of that. And then learned. I think it's just the the demands of time. I mean, obviously, you're coming straight from the game, so you don't have to do any prep work. Right. But still, it requires a certain amount of energy. Most guys would not want to do that. You guys are – you have yeah. to do press. You have to do recovery stuff. You don't – you know, if a game is – But to your point, that's where I learned to have more energy on air because yeah. there, was, there was a lady there. She was like, you just finished a game, and I understand you're tired, but this is also entertainment. You have to – project and you have to have energy it's like okay and in my head i'm like i just play the game <laughs> but because of that because of her telling me that that's when i learned to have energy so i know now i'm chill on this but usually that's where i get it from yeah no when like, you're when you're on television 
Yeah. You are amped up. You know how to amp it up. Yeah. And then you can turn it off. Yeah. Why did you decide to do broadcasting while you're playing? So it was actually my marketing agent that frankly forced me to do it because I didn't want to do broadcasting at all. And he was like, you know, you're articulate. You get your point across very well. You obviously know the game. You know, you really should think about broadcasting. Um, but back then, because I absolutely refused to do broadcasting. But how did you have a broadcasting agent before so you started broadcasting? So that's what happened. He, I absolutely refused to do broadcasting. So he would get me marketing deals. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, I'm going to get you marketing deals. That's awesome. But he was like, I'm telling you, you're going to be a good broadcaster one day. And I was like. So he obviously came to you. Right. Like I want to rep, I want to rep right. you, even and though you don't want to do what I. Yes, basically, do. <laughs> I was like, not doing this, and he was like, "All right, we'll just give it a few years." But I'm telling you, you'll be a really good broadcaster. That's like a sports agent going up to somebody and being like, "I know you don't like sports, but I want to be your sports agent." <laughs> and then somehow forcing them into sports. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what happened. When you started doing the broadcasting, I'm curious because it's like uh, it's almost a teaching moment mm-hmm. for athletes who are trying to transition. And that's not to say that athletes are going to be able to transition into broadcasting. That's not the mm-hmm. message that I want to send. But I'm, your mentality, something made you do something that you didn't want to do. Is it just the long term picture? It was or- more. No, it was really because my my marketing slash broadcast mm-hmm. agent. He has a good eye. And um, at the time, he was representing Michael Strahan. And he was like, look, man, I'm telling you, you know, Michael Strahan was kind of similar. He was a little reluctant at first. And then, you know, he's obviously blown up. And so he was like, I'm telling you, this was, man, it's like six, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I'm telling you, you you can be good. He was like, I don't know how far you want to take it. I'm just telling you that you have uh, the same skill set. And uh, when he said that, and I was like, well, this guy clearly has a good eye for talent. Mm. I should try it out. Got it. Yeah. They get so, like, butthurt if someone tells them no. And it's like, man, there's going to be a million people are going to tell you no. Mm. Like, who cares? You just keep going. And, like, the the no's never really bothered me. And, you know, if, if someone said no, Really, I just want to know why. So you can tell me the why, and mm-hmm. I can correct the why. Then it's going to be a yes eventually, right? If I really keep persisting. So um, things don't know never bother me. I had when I was coming out of high school. I only had uh, Miami, Florida State, and uh, not Florida Pitt, mm-hmm. and it was because everyone was like, "Nope, nope, nope. He's too small." Okay. So only reason Miami came was because they were looking at Frank Gore. We were on the same team. Mm. And uh, the scout uh, at the time, he was like, well, Frank Gore is pretty good. But they had this other guy. He's amazing. Have you guys looked at him yet? And they're like, oh, yeah. Who was that? John Vilma? Oh, okay, yeah. And then that's the only reason Florida State offered me because, well, if Miami's offering him, then we got to offer him too just because he's a rival. Um, but, yeah, it was Plenty of all Florida said no. A bunch of schools said no when I was coming out. So that no, that never bothered me. You've had such an interesting path. Yeah. Because you achieved so many great successes. And yet there's this other side to your story where people didn't really see that talent or potential. Yeah. And then yet you were able to flourish on so many different levels. 
because you don't worry about all the naysayers. I don't, at least. Just keep going. So what makes you better capable than others to take the skills that you learned through childhood, through Mm -hmm. sport, whatever it is, and be able to apply those to different realms of your life? This is something that's really fascinating to me because there are a lot of athletes that really get stuck. And for whatever reason, they're able to reach a high level in one realm, Mm -hmm. sport, let's say, but for whatever reason, they're not able to to take those same skills and apply it to a different area of their life. The things that that translated from from my upbringing to football was discipline, hard work, and uh, resilience. So those three things translate to football because I always believe discipline is what gives you your mental toughness. That's what breeds mental toughness. Then once you have the mental toughness, then you are now resilient Mm -hmm. to withstand all the adversity and then be able to adapt. Um, And then some of the skills that translated from football as I learned those skill sets to everyday life is you gotta, you gotta learn how to work with different kinds of people and keep the same goal. And if you keep it about the same goal, then you shouldn't have any real issues. You're going to have issues because of different personalities, but you're not going to have issues as far as attaining that goal. So, you know, that's what I really enjoyed about football. You had, well, especially in high school, I was in a, a fluent in Gable. So, you know, it's very mm-hmm. fluent over there. So, you know, I had rich white boys, uh, we were, but we we're also like right next to the hood. So we had, you know, black guys mm-hmm. didn't have much Spanish guys, everybody kind of in their own different paths. But mm-hmm. when we play football, it didn't matter if you were a rich white guy or right. a black guy. I was like, can you play ball? All right. If you can play ball, then you're a starter. And then if you can't play, then you're on the bench. Like who cares? And if we won or lost, it's like, look, if we lost, I don't care if you're my boy, we, we lost. We need to figure out how to win and you need to play. Mm-hmm. And you need to play better. So, Keeping it always about the objective was a great way to not get caught up in like uh, little clicks mm-hmm. or, you know, get caught up in or like little Middle stupid. School. Yeah, just nonsense, yeah. right? That, that's Drama. all. Taking that again now to college and NFL is the same thing. It was always about the objective and then transitioning now to um, regular life. You, you just want to build the best team around you. Mm-hmm. You build the best team. You have a goal, one common goal, one objective. And I love different personalities. It's healthy to have different personalities. It's healthy to go back and forth. Um, you can't have a bunch of yes men around you uh, because then you can't grow. And so um, I think that part of having that group around you, you have to be secure enough in yourself to know that you will be wrong. Some of the time, if not a lot of the time, you will not be the smartest one in the group. Mm. You will fail and figure, and you have to figure out how to, you know, bounce back. And I think that a lot of athletes, because they see failing as being vulnerable to keep themselves in this kind of bubble of success, they just put a bunch of yes men around them. They, they don't seek to continue to grow mm-hmm. outside of sports. And also because 
once you've been doing something for so long and if you're playing at the elite level, it's been a while since you were a novice at anything. Exactly. And not good at anything. So I tell tell guys now, look, you have been a great football player for 10 years, 12 years, 15 years. Well, for those 15 years, and now you want to get into real estate. Well, for those 15 years, there was someone that was just as good as you in the equivalent of real estate. And that's what they did all day, every day for 15 years. So you can't expect that you're just going to now retire from football and be, boom, I'm, I'm the next real estate mogul. It doesn't work that way. You you have to learn. You have to take your lumps just the same way they take their lumps. And frankly, you can take their advice. And that's what I mean by not being the smartest one in the room because you may think you have a great deal. You show it to this person who, by the way, has way more experience than you, and they rip it to shreds. And now you feel bad. Well, why would you feel bad? They're helping you. That's the whole point of mm-hmm. not having these yes men around you. You just say having like this old soul. Well, I'm pretty blunt sometimes, so maybe I. (laughs) Well, I was gonna say that's what I was. I've been looking for. I'm like because you're so even keel, you take the emotion out of things. Yeah, so it comes off very dry and blunt. sometimes. Well, because with every strength, sometimes that strength can also be a not necessarily a weakness, but you know, there's another side to that strength. Yeah. So is that the other side of it? Yes, very blunt. Way too blunt. Yes. It's just what it is. <laughs> I don't apologize for it. It's just what it is. Yeah. Uh, any lasting advice for a lot of the athletes out there? For athletes that are retiring, I'd say you have to keep in mind that you can't do it on your own. If I get bigger, faster, stronger, then I am going to be the best. And so everything is on me to... Make sure I wake up on time, train hard, eat right, sleep right, et cetera, et cetera, for me to be the best athlete I can be. And then that makes me the most successful and I make the most money that way. Life is complete opposite. Athletes have to understand, yes, the competitive nature and your competitive drive is what's going to make you successful. But it's not only about you. You have to have that team around you. I would tell young guys that, if you are not in a league or you didn't make it to college, I mean, excuse me, make it to NFL, there are so many opportunities out there, but you have to be doing something. Let's say you had an athlete, they didn't go to the NFL and, uh, you know, they got a law degree or they're going to go back to get their law degree. They can get into the door just because of sports. There are a lot mm-hmm. of people that just like sports, right? And I think that some athletes struggle with that where they have, they get to meet so-and-so. It's like, oh yeah, I met so-and-so. And then the conversation dies. And the conversation mm-hmm. dies because you're you're in their world now. They're, you're, they're not in your world. Right. And so you got to understand that you have to bring something to the table if you want to continue to facilitate that relationship. Um, because I always look at it as if a young linebacker comes to me and says, all right, how can I be great? Well, first, what are you doing to be great? If you're not doing shit, then... Clearly, I can't help you because you have no motivation. There's really nothing for us Mm -hmm. to talk about. So um, I would say that. And then I already mentioned the, you know, don't get so butthurt. Someone tells you no, like, Jesus, 
It's not the end of the world, man. It should be a Vilma bumper sticker. Ugh. Don't get so butthurt. It, people are just so sensitive nowadays. We could have just ended. I mean, honestly, we could have just ended the interview. Like, <laughs> just don't get so butthurt. It's, it's true. They're just so sensitive. People don't agree with you. It doesn't mean they don't like you. I am really going to remember that, that for the just, rest of my life. They just disagree. That's all. <laughs> they don't even know you not to like you. <laughs> they only met you for five minutes, Prim. <laughs> Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on. And coming on to a show, which apparently I did not tell you anything about. No, I didn't even know we were filming. Until I asked. I was like, oh, you didn't even know we were filming for the past two hours. Yeah, so. I was like, oh, we're filming. All right, this is cool. This is how we roll. We like are it. super casual. I, clearly, clearly, I see that. That was cool. So there it is. Don't get so butt hurt. <laughs> All jokes aside. Since my interview with Jonathan, his words of advice to not get so butt hurt have stayed with me ever since because we do take no's personally sometimes. And that's understandable because it's rejection at the end of the day, right? And no one really likes rejection. But Vilma kept pushing no matter what, whether it was his dad saying no to football or the NFL scout saying he was too light as a linebacker or even ESPN. They said no to him twice and look at him now. The reason why he's been able to achieve professional success after sport is because he takes the no's and then figures out the why to the no. He takes the no a step further. He gets feedback, he listens to the feedback, and then he fixes it. It makes me think about the people who say, I didn't get the job because of blank, or I got laid off or rejected because of blank. They find a way to blame someone or something for their own demise rather than taking any sort of accountability for what they did or did not do. And getting real, honest feedback to hear our weaknesses and the areas in which we lack, it takes a lot more courage than just blaming somebody else for our own circumstances. I hope you guys took something from today's conversation. I know I did. A big, warm thank you to JV for taking time out of his crazy schedule to sit down with me. Wow, he's one intelligent guy, and I'm sure all of you picked up on that. And a big thanks to you, the listener. Feel free to let me know what you took away from today's discussion. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Prim underscore Seripipat. No longer you living for them, their reference. Living in that cycle makes you do things for their reaction. There's no more sport. You see me right now. I get it. It's on you. But that is not what I am. If I did it. back to football. No, that ain't cool. Chapter with Prim Sorry Pat drops every Wednesday on the athletic.com and wherever you find podcasts.